0: Welcome to another Distinct Nostalgia by M.I.M. More than a podcast. It's time for a return to our comedy writing legends series now on Distinct Nostalgia, and this pair really are legends. From their homes in the States, deep in the middle of the first lockdown, Ashley managed to catch up with none other than Dick Clement and Ian Lafrenet, who created, among other British classics, Porridge, The Likely Lads and Our Fideszain Pet.
1: Thank you very much indeed uh, for talking to us, uh, Dick and Ian. Now, you two go back such a long way, and that, that sound, might sound rude, me saying that in some respects it makes it sound like you're 100 or something, but, but you, it feels sometimes as though the things that you created have been just part of our lives for just so long, have been there forever. I don't know who wants to start the story, but take us back to where it all began in terms of you two, how you both met and actually began... Collaborating? I got a job at the
2: BBC having left. We both did national service. And um, I got into the BBC straight away as a studio manager, which was one of those vague terms, so like a glorified sound engineer. But it was one of those, wasn't very well paid, but you felt you were in a very good gene pool where things might happen and might develop. I also had a vague desire to be an actor. And I got my rocks off doing that by doing amateur acting. And we did review, and so by then I'd met Ian just as a drinking partner, and we lived in the same area of Earl's Court. We used to go and play cards during the day when he was out of work and I was on shift work. And and so when we were doing this review, I asked his, his flatmates to do a couple of things because they'd been on Time Tees television. And he'd felt left out, so he, he, he wanted to get, to join in. So we wrote a sketch for this show. And it was called Double Date, and it was two blokes having a post mortem, having had a date, intercut with the two girls. So you have got the girls' point of view and the guys' point of view. And those really were that—that that was the embryonic likely lads. We didn't know that at the time, but when I when I got eventually to television, which took a little while, they I got on a director's course and they said, uh, "Do something. Here's a studio." So I said to him, I said, look, let's expand that sketch, double date. And we did. And I recorded it. And then they said eventually, do you, do you see this as a series? <laughs> well, you know, he had no idea of it whatsoever. Well, what are you going to say if somebody says that?
3: Yeah, actually, Dix, Dix, what he this thing he did was actually, it was like his exam to see if he passed the director's course. He'd make a practical program. he give him a small budget. And Dick was able to cast four real actors and shot this thing. And then uh, that was the end of it. Dick was accepted on the director's course. And then, as he said, a few months later, someone at the BBC said, do you think this is a series? Well, you know, it was extraordinary because we were very young. We'd never written anything before except a few sketches for the amateur review. And suddenly we were, uh, well, we were in a pub in Soho called The Shakespeare, which is appropriate. Getting slightly pissed at this overwhelming news that we were actually going to be professional writers. Extraordinary how, how it started. And we did. We wrote the series and it worked. Well, I also got asked to direct it. And so I didn't know any actors.
2: I looked through Spotlight and I was very impressed by anybody who'd been in a movie. And, and of course, James Bolam had been in um, Loneliness of a Long Distance Runner. Rodney Buse had been in Billy Lyre. And actually casting those two was a very good day's work because they were a lovely combination. I mean, it it clearly worked because otherwise the show wouldn't have worked. And and then we sort of plunged into into the writing of the series. I remember the first night, uh, Ian sitting behind me in the gallery. The first time somebody laughed, the audience laughed, I turned around to Ian and basically did thumbs up. And I missed five shots, but fortunately, the vision mixer, who was a professional, and I was a complete idiot that had I'd not really done it before, he kept cutting. But, I mean, I, I, for all the use I was, I might as well have gone home because I sort of, it was like watching a, a removal van go downhill without any brakes. I mean, once it started, it was, it was off and running. But happily, it worked, and when people did like it, this was only for BBC Two, which had a tiny audience. But then uh, they asked us to do a a segment for that show called, if you remember it, Christmas Night with the Stars. So we did a little sketch for that. And that went out for about 15 million viewers as opposed to the 240 that were watching BBC Two at the time. And then they said, oh, this this was a big hit. We'll we'll repeat it on BBC One. So then we were launched.
1: Fabulous, fabulous, fabulous. So where was the inspiration from in the first place? It was basically just about... Two guys. That was the whole Idea was it, and was it more about you know the fact that two guys who, who just drank together and were friends and that kind of thing? And where? How did the location come into it in terms of thinking about the fact that it obviously it was
3: based in the in, in the northeast? Well, it, it was a fantastic period for movies in the sixties. Well, we hadn't seen movies like we saw in the sixties. We'd just seen movies about vintage car races and doctors and uh, up, upper class people. Wearing cravats. We'd never seen working class heroes before till the 60s, till the emancipation of, you know, the liberation of the 60s. And it wasn't just the music with the, with all the 60s bands. It was the, the movies they were making. For the first time, the leading men had working class accents. Albert Finney, Tom Courtney, Alan Bates. And those were the movies Dick and I loved. And and, and those inspired us. We weren't at home watching television. I, I don't know if I had it. Yes, I think so. But we loved those movies. So I think the inspiration was cinema, not television, except we we revered Gordon and Simpson, Hancock and Steptoe. And so we said, instead of setting this in a drawing room, what what about a terraced house with an outside lavatory? And what about guys who work in a factory, not work in an accountant's office? And what about those people we're seeing on the screen in movies? What about having those two guys in a television series? So it was a bit of a long shot. But I think because of the zeitgeist, there's a word for you, because of the climate of working-class emancipation and all the interest in, in, in the music and the theatre and the films that were coming out, I think they called it the new wave, uh, our thing resonated. It, it was as simple as that. It, and I it think was, it's, it's it set a, set a tone old. for us about, it's about people working against the odds, which seemed to define the rest of our career for the next 40 years. So it was. A, so it was. A, the inspiration, in a way, was those sort of kitchen sink dramas. Was it absolutely kitchen sink drama? Or there was movies. You know, Saturday Night, Sunday Morning, Long Distance Runner, kind of loving, sporting life. Th- th- those were the films that excited us. And the series was obviously cast with actors, not comedians.
2: You know, most of the sitcoms in those days tended to be with comedians. Then the other decision was where do we set it? Well, Ian's from the northeast. I'm from Essex, so undoubtedly he was closer to the grainy movies we're talking about. We couldn't actually say it was Newcastle because there were no Geordie actors at the time. Nobody had ever heard Geordie on television when we started. And so we we were slightly vague about it. But Jimmy's from Sunderland. Rodney's from Bingley in Yorkshire. So we, we sort of hedged our bets. Then when we brought it back... Uh, by then there were a few Geordie actors, and and then we actually came out of the closet and said, yes, it's in Newcastle, and I think the the, the city now owns it outright. I think there's even a paving stone with the like it on it somewhere, or is that Blackpool? I can't remember. But yes, it was that. That was the genesis of it. Uh, and as I say, there were no Geordie actors, so that wasn't an option.
1: Now, in terms of the storylines, obviously it was about you know everyday things, wasn't it? It was about you know. Um... Making ends meet and girls and everything really, and those are the kind of things that guys would would talk about really.
3: Well, yeah, yeah were basically three sets—you know, Terry's house, a factory, and a pub—that was their life. You know, this was the '60s. This was just before psychedelia and and the counterculture. But it, it looks like the '50s, the Likely Lads. It looked like a '50s series. The landscape of that northeast. Then, of course, whatever happened, the likelihood adds, is firmly rooted in the 70s. Yeah. It was actually it actually
2: shot round the back of television centre. Um, you know, w- there were a few streets around there that looked sufficiently northern to pass muster w- w- for Mr Lafrenet. And so, we, yeah, we never went north uh, in the first three series. We did go to the Norfolk Broads, though. We had the, the guys on the Norfolk Broads. Sadly, that's one of the episodes that has been wiped by the BBC, which is... A source of great regret to us
1: to remind us just of some of those early episodes the ones that stand out for you the ones you remember doing and being quite proud of and as you say i know there's quite a lot of them that have disappeared haven't they but tell us what um which ones stand out and which and which ones made a bit of a you know when they eventually ended up on bbc one and what could be seen were the ones that actually made a bit of a stir we'll be back after a quick break
4: you still loading them and heating them up with all your single shit you've been dropping. You yeah. feel me? Loading them up on it, it only takes structure, and, and you know just paying attention to the climate of the game.
2: Yeah, know what I mean? So do do your homies uh got a role in your in your little? You know, man? Yeah, yeah. We all we all artists over here, man. Y'all yeah, I'm trying, I'm trying, yeah.
5: I'm trying to get them on there. Yeah, yeah. Damn, me, y'all do me, Look, look, look. We all artists, man. We go. You feel me? We gonna have this like. Bro, me and my man, like me and my man Kyle, we be like, I don't know, we play we play with this <laughs> shit right play with this now. Shit. I got like we
4: play with this shit right
3: now for a lot. Don't, oh, don't, don't play, it don't play with no. it. Take that shit soon. Yeah, the first one isn't very good. And uh, I, I, I Dick and I like an episode called Rocker. That's very good. Taking the driving test. We, like, we liked an episode that's disappeared called what, Where have All the Flowers Gone? Which was about even though there were only twenty-one it was about nostalgia. <laughs> Blind Date was an episode we liked where they were didn't know they were both going out with the same girl. Didn't know it. Played by Isabel Black. I think, well, I think our favorite episode is the last one. Goodbye to all that. Which... Um, yeah. with, with Bob you know, when joined Bob, the army. Bob yeah. joined the army. Terry couldn't stand being without him. He joined. Bob got discharged and left Terry in the army for three years. And it was the perfect end episode when we said, that's it. We're all going our separate ways. We're all going to see if we can write something that's not the likely lads. And it was not till uh, six, seven years later that we went back to television and brought back whatever happened to.
1: You. I mean, you, this was your early days in writing. Generally, you were, you were working together. Um, the first sort of big thing together. How how does that work? Or how did it work for you? Did one of you take on board how one character was and the other character, or did you? You know, how did you go about well, doing the scripts, as it were?
2: Uh, I was the one who wrote it down, because my handwriting was more legible than Ian's. It still is. Now it's on the computer, of course.
1: But but you,
2: there's a lot of ad living. I mean, in other words, you know, you ad-lib. No, we, we didn't take different parts. You, you, and and the, the whole thing is, if you're writing with the spoken word, you have to hear it spoken. So the first performances of all of them, every character, was always us reading it through so that you could hear the rhythm of it and, whether, and where it bounced next. We still do that. I mean, that, that's still to a great extent. I mean, it's changed, of course, but, but you know, hearing it, hearing the rhythm of the dialogue and reading it over is, is still part of the process.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I run a you know, radio production company, and even on the whole area of you know, writing you know, scripts for documentaries and whatever, I much prefer to hear what we've done than to just read it because it just doesn't it's not the same thing you know people deliver things in particular ways and certain things come out of people's interviews and all that kind of stuff you're you're absolutely absolutely right
3: um so i uh, mean it's physically very difficult because i i never quite believed it was all happening i i didn't give up the day job till the till we'd done three series of the likely lads and a movie really so it was very difficult for me to physically work with Dick. I was working in, in market research. It's all very vague, but doesn't matter. And I had to try and get from Soho to Shepherd's Bush Television Center or go to his house in the evenings. I mean, those first two series, I'm not, I'm not quite sure how I physically managed it. I remember at lunchtimes when Dick was actually in rehearsals, I would get the tube across because it was so exciting. You know, I was in a room with actors and actresses. Uh, and then I had to go back to work. I think the guy who employed me was very understanding, and I suppose that it was so, it sounded sexy. Oh, he's a writer for the BBC, but it was very difficult.
2: When we when we started writing our first movie, which was for Michael Winner, called The Joker's, he insisted on having us in his office, uh, which was almost opposite Fortnum and Mason. So that was. That was nearer where Ian did market research. But by then, I was also directing commercials. And so what would happen would be that um, Ian would pop round to his place, or I would go to a casting session, and Michael Winner would come in and say, where's Dick? Or where's Ian? And and we would always say that the other one had just gone to coffee. But he never saw both of us in the same room at the same
3: time, which was like a running joke. It was a big... Posh apartment in Mayfair. He put us in very lavish, empty. I don't think I found out later, Dick. I don't think I told you this. Years later, that was occupied. That flat by the the police when they just started. Oh well. Wow. Stuart Copeland lived in that flat on Green Street. Yes. So I remember the day when I did come a full time writer after three series in a movie, and remember in those days you put um, occupation on your passport. And it was enormous pride that I got a new passport and scrubbed out Student, which had been there forever, and wrote Writer. Fabulous. Big big moment. (laughs) So what was the response like to the
1: likely lads at the time? I I mean, it was on BBC Two, as you say, so it was tucked away a bit, then got an audience on BBC One. And how did people respond to it? And in particular, how did people in the Northeast respond to it?
3: Oh, very well. I remember going up there. I think the people who knew me well were slightly resentful. They basically just thought I'd nicked every conversation I'd ever had with them for the last few years. It was like, oh, well done, Ian. But you know, it's that Geordie thing. You're not going to say too much well done. It's like, oh, so you've got something on the telly. Oh, I. it was a bit like that, but that's fine. But then later, the Northeast made us national treasures, but the critics made the show the critics were very good i think you know the the posh papers clive right, james the observer and Clive, J- and the telegraph and the tatler even had a cover with the boys on, because they kind of we were the television representatives of what was going on in cinema and theater and music and then i think because of the press reaction we, we got nominated for a writers guild award i mean i
1: grew up i grew up in the 70s and We'll talk in a moment about whatever happened to the <laughs> like lads. But um, I grew up in the seventies, and if I'm being honest, I, I mean I, I was from Yorkshire, a, a South Yorkshire. Grew up in Doncaster, and I do remember an episode of yours where they stuck at, at Doncaster. Oh Railway. yes, the first episode <laughs> of Whatever Happened to you. Exactly Exactly. Um, so, um, but but for me, uh, growing up in the in the early to mid seventies, my lasting image of the Northeast of anybody in the Northeast was the Likely Lads, do you know what I mean, it was, it was, I just thought that's how everybody was in the northeast. it was likely you shaped, you shaped people's impression of, of the northeast. And I don't think it was a bad impression, it was great, oh the only other thing I suppose was um, uh, When the Boat Comes In, which of course James, uh, Yes. well of course. Yeah, When the Boat Comes In was big series. Yeah, no it was, it was, it was indeed, so tell us a bit about James and Rodney and you know, bringing them together and you know, how, how, Quickly did they manage to sort of create the the, the chemistry do you think well
2: oh, very quickly i i, I mean it ju- it just worked you know Jimmy's a very serious actor and and he he always said he trusted the text. I was very impressed that our our work was re- referred to as having a text because I thought it was only Shakespeare that had a text, you know so that was a very posh word, but in other words he did you know he he respected what was on the page and tried to portray it. I, when I directed the first series, I mean, if, if anybody came up with something better, uh, or, or if, if if we hit a wrong note, and they said I wouldn't say that, and you know, I was totally open to to hearing alternatives, the same as when I directed movies. I mean, if anybody came up with a better idea, I thought that's that's fine, it's in. I'll still get the credit at the end of the day <laughs> if there is any to be had. Um, so I never never minded people making suggestions, but they were they were. They were a very good team, actually. They really were. I'll talk a bit about, you know, why we brought them back. We both had the same thought over 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 separate holidays in the summer, you know, and we came back and said, you know, we should have another look at that. And I'll tell you what it was. We suddenly realized what a lot happens between, you know, they were about 19 in the first series, and suddenly they're 25 or something like that. Well, that's when everything happens. You know, you get married. Or you don't get married and, and you, or you, you change your job, you get promotion it 's an enormous amount and what we discovered very early on I think as Ian touched on it earlier, was that you don't have to be very old to be nostalgic you know you can you can be thirteen and remember how much easier life was when you were eight <laughs> it's, That was one of the first things we observed you know and and so obviously that, that was a vein that we we attacked. But then, of course, the, uh, the core idea of Bob being about to get married and then Terry revealing that he had been married, been there, done that, that was a fantastically rich vein. Plus, all the changes that were happening in Britain at the time.
1: Yeah, no, no, absolutely. And you're right about nostalgia. I mean, I think some people are not often nostalgic for things that they that went before they were born sometimes. You know, people, have often, people often talk about things you think, you weren't even born. How are you talking about? Well, no, I, I agree with you that that was that was the great thing about that series. I, I I loved it for that reason. But before we go on and talk about whatever happened to the to the to the like lads in that first series, obviously there was Rodney and James, but Sheila Fern was also in that, wasn't she? Is that right? Oh she yes, was in the first Yeah. Tell she us a it. bit about her because she's somebody who, sadly, obviously she did George and Mildred and things as well, but she sort of. She's disappeared in a way. We've not seen her for, for years and years and years. What was she like as, a, as, a, as an actor? And how did you decide on, on, on Sheila?
2: I she can't remember why we chose her, but, but I mean, it, it, again, it worked. Uh, the relationship between her character, Audrey, and Terry gave us another note.
3: She was lovely, Sheila. She had a Scottish boyfriend. Time has been. But then Sheila, between series one and series two, she was in Hard Day's Night, which impressed us no end. So by the time she came back, we were bombarding her questions about John Lennon. She always sighed when we mentioned his name. She then went on to have a great career, Sheila. I thought she she's still working, isn't she, Sheila?
1: She retired quite a long time ago from. Oh,
3: she did retire. Yeah. Yeah. She was a great friend of Uther Joyce. Yeah, but she was good casting. She was really authentic. She looked like working class girl, and she was a hairdresser in the series, and she had that kind of 60s beehive haircut.
1: So bringing bringing it back then, this was a new, obviously, 1973, wasn't it? You brought it back, is
3: that right? Yes. Yeah. Great. Yeah, as Dick said, we both had the same idea at the same moment on separate holidays. I wonder what happened to those two. Rodney loved the idea. Well, I was actually, had been on holiday with Rodney at the time. Jimmy said, oh, no, no, it's done, we've done it, done that. You know, there's no reason to go back. And I don't think in those days the word sequel was ever mentioned, sequel, prequel, God. So Dick and I took Jimmy to a a restaurant on the King's Road in Chelsea, which was the kind of cool place at the time. Very long lunch, wasn't it, Dick? Yeah. Probably three bottles of Val Policella, two rounds of that horrible drink Sambuca.
2: But we started to make him laugh, didn't we? I mean.
3: and, and And then Jimmy was in.
2: It, we made him laugh at, at the core idea of Bob getting married and him having been married. And that, that was the thing. It's, again, the text, he liked the sound of the text. So that's, that's why we did it.
1: Fabulous, fabulous. And it's, uh, you know, again, we're talking about the, the chats they have, the fact that they're, they're anchoring after the, the old days. You know, they're going into this new mode of life, married life, which, you know, with all its boringness, it can be. If you're not careful <laughs> and all it's sort of very you know uh, you've got that whole thing haven't you of of, of bob sort of in, in a way becoming sort of lower lower middle class as it were or whatever and 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 he, oh, yes. you know he the other one's still, still working class so you've got all that tension as well haven't you
3: yes well, well, jimmy's working class attitude sort of was exaggerated and because that was his only alibi being left behind do you know what I mean? Not being part, he, he used to moan, I missed the 60s. And he missed the early part of the 70s. But the nostalgia element was very strong. Every time they passed a pub, because, you know, there was a major redevelopment in the 70s in the Northeast and, and most big cities. So every time they saw a pub being threatened with being knocked down, they would go into all sorts of nostalgic memories. And I remember Terry had a line when he said, Is the, you know, there was a famous rock club called the Gogo." where the animals first played and the stones played there. And when he was told there was no go I remember, go, the Go-Go, gone. And, <laughs> yeah. and, uh, so the, the nostalgia element was, 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 was very constant. But then uh, there was also the contemporary element of, of Jimmy getting used to all the um, things that he didn't know about, flared trousers, or uh, all, all, all the consumerism of the 70s, blow-dried haircuts. Uh, that was, and uh, what is it? What's that awful Swiss dish called fondue? And blood, oh, yeah. and blue nun wine, and the basic rollers. So this yeah. was another world to Terry.
1: And, 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 and but also the other thing is, of course, that even though they're having to change and develop into these new this new life, there is a sort of anchor, obviously there's a hankering back to before. And they both try that out a bit still, don't they? They still want to do things. They still want to, you know, enjoy themselves, as it were. And obviously, Terry's always trying to get them to, to do that, aren't they? And that obviously causes the tension between uh, Bob and, um, and his wife, doesn't it?
2: Yeah. Thelma was a very wonderful piece of casting. Uh, Bridget Forsyth was a marvellous foil. I mean, she, was, she got so many laughs with, with her reactions. And, uh, oh, it's not Terry's fault entirely you know she would she would do those lovely pauses you know to me where and we suddenly realized I remember halfway through the second series that we had never given Terry and Thelma a scene together and we said this is a big mistake you know And we we suddenly rectified that by by putting them together and had to have have a moan about Bob actually and so that was that was lovely it's wonderful when you, you can expand characters when you start to know them that well
1: it's a little heart to heart, wasn't it, about Bob? Yes, that's know, right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Now the thing about it is, when you look back at it, um, in a way, I've watched it. It gets repeated every now and again. That um, what have happened to the, to the likely, like lad. Although it's about the 1970s, it still resonates with all the decades since then. In a way, because you were talking about all the buildings being bulldozed down or whatever, and actually that's carried on in different ways over the years. And so that that part is there. But it's weird how that sort of anchoring back to a different period, we can all sort of identify with. So what I'm trying to say, I suppose, is I think it stands the test of time, even though it's very firmly in the 1970s.
3: Uh, Well, maybe. I hope so. Or perhaps it's just the characters. People don't change all that much. The relationship between the characters. They're growing up. Yeah, but it's, it's nice that you say that, but it's, it's hard to sort of be objective and analyze it. But yes, you could see all sorts of contemporary shows, which is basically about friendship. I mean, at the heart of it, essentially, it's about friendship.
1: Fantastic. I, th- I, I love it. And um, you know, you did, was it two series you did of that? Is that right?
3: Yes, two series, 13 episodes each and a Christmas special and a movie.
1: I was gonna ask you about the movie. Of course, that, that's what had changed from the 60s, wasn't it? You'd suddenly got the comedies that were happening in the 70s. Every comedy seemed to have to have a movie, didn't it? To, to, to it, you know?
3: Well, I know, that's why we, we basically, we didn't want to write it at first, did we, Dick? We said, oh no, these, these spin-offs are all awful, but you know, they're, they're, I'm not being snobbish, but a lot of the comedy writers were used to half hour and, ha- and not 90 minutes, but Dick and I had done movies. By the time we'd done the Light like Lads movie, we'd written about five or six, so we knew how to make it look like a movie, feel structurally, narratively like a movie. It, it's still a spin-off movie, uh, but, but it probably had a bit more production values than the average one.
2: Did you do well? I, I'm very fond of it. It's got, it's got, it's got one, of our, one of our favorite scenes where they're playing bridge. In the caravan, you know uh, that, that that's that's one of my favourite scenes ever.
5: Oh,
1: my yeah, God. no, I think I think it's a good film. Again, it gets it does get shown a fair amount over here. Actually, um, often it's uh, I think oh, it's a it's a whatever happened to the likely, likely lads episode that I've not seen. Then I realise it's the film again. The film seems to get repeated more than the, more than the series in many ways. How did it? How was it? Um, how did it go down? The film was it? Did it get a good audience? I believe we did. Yes, I mean we were we were in America by then, so it
2: was kind of odd. We weren't around during shooting. I think we got back uh, in time for the premiere. We went up to the Northeast for the premiere of it, you know. Um, and no, I, I think it had a, a, a good a, a good warm reception. I, I think it was
3: it was fine. You no, know, it's it, it it it's still very warmly thought of in the Northeast. And in fact, we were in the Northeast two years ago at a film festival doing a Q&A on, on our latest film. Well, it's documentary, My Generation. And there was this tour. They persuaded us to go on this tour, which is famous places in the Northeast, uh, you know, with, with show business, Stan Laurel's birthplace. This was the street where they shot by and Pets. this scene, that scene. With the light lads, most of them, all the locations have gone, except this house, which was the boarding house from the movie. And we met the guy, and he has tourists there all the time, taking photographs of his house. So the film was, uh, it, it, it is, it's very affectionately thought of in the North.
1: The thing I always remember is that lasting image in the, in the series of, uh, of the kids playing on the wall. Uh, I presume that wall will have disappeared by now, I'm sure.
3: <laughs> Every, you know, the, the, the credit sequence of whatever happened to the light lads, which is quite cinematic, um, with Bob and Terry in different locations. I did a, a documentary where I went round all the locations. Only the Time Bridge remains, <laughs> of all those shots. Nothing else is there. Uh,
1: amazing, amazing. Did What was the response to the series, the, the second series, then, Whatever Happened to the Likely Lads? Was that, you know, did did you get a really good response to that when it came back in the, in the 70s? Yes, it was, it was very, very good. <laughs> I, I think it yeah, ended. Big numbers. One of our champions
2: was Clive James. Clive James always gave us great reviews, and, and he was the one who coined the phrase the dreaded film, wasn't he, Clive James? But, but I, he, he just seemed to get it. Yeah. Again, you see, we were lucky in this respect. There weren't 55 channels then, you know. You, 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 he, there was BBC One, BBC Two, and ITV. So you could really make a big impact with the series where, you know, you could you could hear people talking about it the next day. And that doesn't happen anymore now. This is before people recorded everything and and saw it when they felt like it. It's the same with Porridge. I mean, that, that had an instant response. The very next day I was shooting a commercial and nobody had any idea that I had anything to do with it, but I heard them all talking about it. And that, that made me feel that maybe we had another hit.
1: We'll talk about that in a second, but just finally on the, uh, on the likely lads. It, it's one of these things that obviously still gets played and there have been people who tried to look at doing things with it. Didn't Anton Deck do something where they pretended to be the likely? They no recorded um, the, uh,
2: No Way Out, which was the one where they're trying to avoid the score of the England football game.
3: Uh, what did you make of that?
2: I, it was it was fine. It was a nice tribute from them. But I didn't feel that we improved on the original.
3: Yeah, but they were they were such fans. And they, and they were so keen. Of course. They're good guys. Um, but... I don't see it repeated as much as I would have thought, whatever happened to Lauderdale. I really, I don't, I, I would have thought it was, in the last few years, it would have been worthy of a repeat. But I don't, I've never seen it repeated on BBC or BBC One or Two. Is it on one of the other channels? It gets, or
1: it gets repeated on BBC Four quite a lot. Oh, does know. it? The, the series does, yeah. And then ah. occasionally you, you'll see the... Um, the film on some of these satellite channels and things will we'll get repeated.
3: Yeah, around. yeah, yes, sure. And I think the Christmas special sometimes pops up on the, on the Christmas programming. You know.
1: Yeah, exactly. What do you make of having to do Christmas specials? Did everyone have to do a Christmas special back in the day? Didn't they? Were they? Was that a chore for you doing a Christmas special? Did you? No, no, of, it was fun. It was from? quite.
3: It was quite good writing that extra fifteen minutes. Um, the
2: the labs Christmas special, I think, is, a, is. Duncan Wood loved it. He was head of comedy at the time. He, thought it was, he sent us a glowing memo saying he thought it was one of the finest things on British television. It's pretty funny. It's, I must admit, I'd love to see it again, actually. I haven't seen it for a while.
0: And Ashley's comedy writing legends conversation with Dick Clement and Ian Lafrenet will continue on Distinct Nostalgia in a few minutes.
5: As well as amazing interviews just like the one you're listening to now, the Distinct Nostalgia podcast is also home to an epic radio quiz. Oh, I've never heard of it. Where listeners just like you go head-to-head on their favourite TV shows and films and put their general knowledge to the test. There's a bonus point if you can sing the theme tune, but I know you're not going to, are you? Skippy,
0: skippy, skippy the bush kangaroo is all I can remember now. Yeah, well, that, yeah, that earns you a point. Yeah, I'll go for that.
5: A brand new season of the Distinct Nostalgia Mind of the Month quiz is almost here, and it needs you.
0: Prisoner cell block.
5: Cell block B. Prisoner cell block H. Simply pick your favourite TV show or film and get in touch at distinctnostalgia.com or by messaging us on Twitter. Have a go at three British films. Just have a guess. Oh,
2: whistle down the wind. Carry on up the kaiber. No, this is rubbish. I'm sorry.
5: No, I don't know. They're not bad attempts, actually. (laughs) And the two leading minds from across the month compete head-to-head in the final for a coveted Distinct Nostalgia mug. It's almost like a trophy. The Distinct Nostalgia Mind of the Month quiz. Got there, in the. And oh, it's
0: amazing! They always are. <laughs> Distinct
4: drama, fresh and original. Coming to Distinct Nostalgia this Christmas, a trilogy of comedy dramas by Carl Chetty, starting with Soft Centers. When I think of how I've wasted my life here, starring Sir Derek Jacobi as Frankie. Placing handmade soft centres and nut clusters into punsy dwarf coffins is hardly an achievement. And Joanna Lumley as Millicent.
5: Oh, Frankie's well past this game. He's been here 30-odd years. He'll be carried out in a box.
4: (laughs) It's probably a gold choccy box with red bows and ribbons. And the story continues in... Hard centres.
5: Well, I'm supposed to be retired, you know, but I'm back in the basement, in my own little chalky grotto.
4: (laughs) Starring Sir Derek Jacobi as Frankie and Imelda Staunton as Millicent.
5: I hear I like your new hat, sis. I'll slap you in a minute, cheeky run. You know it is my hat, it's my hair. Sebastian just done it. Incidentally Yes And what's that dirty look for? Your senorita's gone But not forgotten My senorita What did you do to her? Show her your erogenous zone
4: And we conclude with Dark Centres, starring Sir Derek Jacobi as Frankie and June Brown as Millicent.
5: Is there something going on between you two? Chant to be a fine thing, but I'm working on it.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Helen Lederer as Mrs Hamilton. So he's given someone a box of hard centres instead of soft centres. So what? That's what dentists are for. And Christopher Ryan as Mr Hamilton.
0: Things are already at half-cock. My tinnitus is getting worse, and plus I can't sprint for a taxi anymore without wheezing and drawing on my inhaler.
4: So that's Soft Centres, Hard Centres, and Dark Centres, by Carl Chetty. Available this Christmas only on Distinct Nostalgia, wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Obviously, I would like to also talk to you about Porridge. Now, for me, Porridge is a masterpiece. I just love the dialogue between um, Ronnie Barker and Richard Beckinsale, and I love the fact that you know you care so much about these characters, even though they're you know they're, they're supposed to be criminals. I know they're petty criminals generally in the way, but you, you know you care about them so much, and that, that it's that the fact that you, you managed to get the sort of tragedy in there that you know it's, Porridge is not. It's not laugh a minute i.e you 're constantly laughing because you identify with the characters in a way and they're, they're locked as it were in, a, in a, more in a dramatic way. So tell us a bit about that. how did you set up about doing that after obviously you've done films and things you've done the like lads, but where did that inspiration from, come from to do porridge?
2: Well, I, I think we went round three prisons when we finished going around those prisons. We looked at each other and said, they're so depressing. I mean, they are depressing places. And we said, how the hell are we going to make this funny? I mean, we, we really, it, 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 there was a moment of real doubt. And then we sort of said, well, Ronnie Barker will be coming around the corner. And Ronnie Barker is somebody with, you know who makes you smile before he's said a, said a word. Um, it, it, there are certain people like that, and it's a wonderful quality. So that was very reassuring. And we, we had done the pilot, which was from a series called Seven of One, which was Prisoner and Escort. So we'd met Barraclough and we'd met Mackay. And that was a, was a wonderful dynamic there. But at the same time, we, all, we said to ourselves, look, we, we, we can't just write Bilko in prison. You know, we can't. We love Bilko, by the way. That was Ronnie's original idea was a wheeler dealer. He, he thought of doing a series in prison. But we said, no, we can't write that. We had to acknowledge the fact that prison is not a great place to be. And, and, and obviously that, that came out in, in Richard Beckinsale's Godbert, who you know confessed in that very early episode we did, a night in, an evening in, where you know he confessed that he was really having a tough time dealing with it. And then you see, that established that Fletcher became his sort of mentor uh, uh, to, to help him through it you know a sort of father figure although he would never have admitted that so it, it was just that we always felt that everything we've we've done has to have some sort of basis in reality we had to tone the language down you know so we we sort of made naff off uh, we didn't invent naff off i think keith waterhouse has it in billy Liar, but we thought that was a good way of conveying what we what everybody meant um without actually saying it but we just wanted it to, to feel real
3: well, but we never met ronnie he did a series called seven of one where he half our comedies playing a different character in each one and we wrote two one was prisoner and escort one was one about a welsh gambling crazy family the idea of course was to look for spin-offs well we 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 talked with ronnie should it be the welsh one should it be porridge and be. The three of us all decided. Let's pick the riskier one, porridge. I think open all hours also came from seven of one. Yeah. So it was a, it was a mutual decision uh, when we first met Ronnie to go to go with porridge. Because as Dick said, we'd already established three great characters in it, you know, Fletcher and uh, Baraklev and Mackay, and and the director Sid Lotterby, uh, who was going to stay with it. Uh, and, and as Dick said, that's, when, that's what led to the visits around the prisons and, and the doubt and depression. But then we met an ex-con who was offering his services as a technical advisor. We had a drink with him in some dubious basement pub Club in Richmond. And then he came up with a line that changed everything for us. It gave us a point of view. He said, prison's all about little victories, getting an extra sausage in the chow line. Or getting an extra blanket, or stealing a packet of cigarettes—little victories—and that that informed the series and Fletcher's character and the way he survived prison for Dick and I.
1: Yeah, no, it's the thread all the way through, isn't it? Um, yeah. What I really like about it is, um, I like the fact that you get real depth around Fletcher and, and Godber's characters. You know, you as a viewer, you as I said at the beginning, you know, you care about them and you want them to be okay, and they want you to get through this kind of thing. And there's emotion there, there's tension. Obviously, it often ends in a bit of comedy and light relief at the end, but it goes deeper. And I think that's really good uh, to have comedy that does that. Because my problem with a lot of comedy today is you don't get any of that depth anymore, you know? And I I think it's really good that you do that. So just tell us a bit about that and how you shaped their sort of backstories, as it were, you know, um, Goddard's backstory and Fletcher's.
3: Well, the whole process was organic. You'd establish these characters, then you think we need to know more about them. So actually, around the 70s, 80s, Dick and I suddenly realized that a backstory is incredibly important, even if it's never on the screen. I remember, especially when we did a film called Still Crazy, Brian Gibson, the director, said, so what are all their backstories? And it was kind, it's very useful for the actor also to know uh, even if it's not on the screen, if it's never filmed, never comes out, even in dialogue, conversation, the acting was. oh, I see, I came from this, and I was brought up like that. And it, and it was kind of fun, and you'd keep a little bit back for another time. And let's not forget, though, that the, the, the chemistry of Porridge owed so much, not just to Roddy, but to the entire cast, and to the director, Sid Lodderby. And interestingly enough, when Dick was a trainee, well, a first-time director on The Lightland's, he was kind of mentored by Sid Lutterby, you know, who is a studio manager and who advised Dick and looked after Dick. And then, so that was fantastic. You know, 10 years later, Sid comes back and directs what would be you know, our greatest hits album.
2: Yeah, they, they assigned Sid to me as my assistant on The Likely Dads, even though he was senior to me and he, he directed stuff of his own. And I always say that you know, if he'd been a different sort of person, he could have stood back. And watched me completely crash and burn. And instead of that, because he's an extremely nice fella, sadly just left us, you know, he was enormously helpful and gave us our first script notes. (laughs) No one else was giving us any. We're very fond of Sid.
1: So how did you how did you end up casting Godpa? How did that
3: come about? But I remember Sid saying we we might be able to get richard beckinsale and we'd seen richard in that series did the lovers and we thought oh that would be great and he did get richard and richard as, as we all know uh, was superb
1: yeah no absolutely and um and and, and, and it went on to say to to be a great partnership between ronnie and uh, richard now i I've, I've heard that ronnie barker is often said when he talk, when when he used to talk about the parts that he played over the years and one of my favourites is, I love watching him in uh, in Open All Hours playing It's fantastic. Um, I always laugh at that. But his his favourite part, apparently, was playing Fletcher, wasn't it? He says that yeah. like, Ronnie really enjoyed most. Uh,
3: yes, I think Ronnie Corbett's been quoted as saying that too.
1: Why do you think that was? What do, do we know why he felt it was the best part?
3: I think it's possibly because of all the sketch work. All his television work had been sketches. But if you look at early Ronnie work, and, and he had a history of long history and repertory. He was an actor, he's not a comedian. And I think this reminded him and other people that he was an actor, very funny man, but he was acting Fletcher. He got in under Fletcher's skin. He made us believe in Fletcher, made us believe in him completely. And probably that's the reason. Yeah. Yes, I think he, he founded a three dimensional character.
2: You know, the, the, the fact that you, you I mean, there's that wariness. Which Ian and I always said, when we had to sort of think or get ourselves into the mindset of Fletcher, we imagined somebody coming in and saying, have you heard the news? World War Three's broken out. And his attitude would be, oh, yes. <laughs> in other words, I'll believe it when I see it. Do you know what I mean? There was that, that wariness, oh, yes. Uh, 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 it's interesting how tiny things can sometimes give you a clue to a whole character's attitude, you know, that he had to see things for himself before he believed it. He was not Mr. Gullible in any way. Love that.
1: Did he br- obviously brought things to it as the actor, but did you react to some of the things that, the way in which he played it? And, and you'd, you know, you'd work to, to make, you knew that Ronnie would play it a particular way and then you, you'd you write it a particular way. Did he add extra things to it as while you went along?
2: When we did the read through, we went to act and then we sat round a table and we read the scripts through. And Richard Beckinsale, by the way, was a terrible, terrible reader, so that everybody groaned if he had a long speech. I mean, maybe he was a little dyslexic. Who knows? But that was transformed, you know, at two days later, he was perfect. Now, Ronnie would come up with the odd line, um, and we'd all laugh, and then he would say, is that all right? And we would say, yeah, yes, it's fine, because it always was. I mean, it was sometimes, you know, it was a joke, but it was a joke that you, you could justify it by being it was still within his character it was i don't think we ever threw one out again did we
3: ronnie deferred to the writer he respected the writer ronnie wrote a lot of things himself that people even don't know about he wrote under anonymous names for different shows mostly variety sketch shows but ronnie had that kind of respect he was much admired by the acting profession Lawrence olivier complimented him once didn't he dick
2: Yes, yeah, so at a baptism ceremony, he did. Yeah, and, and, in, Ronnie was and, very moved.
3: and in later years, uh, Ronnie was offered to go to the National Theatre to play Falstaff. He 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 turned it down uh, and retired about the same time. And we, we always found that rather sad. And he said to us, I don't know if this has ever been said before, we said, why, why aren't you going to go to the National Theatre? And he said, well, I live in Pinner, and it's on the South Bank. And then he said, If I was more concerned about the journey than the job, maybe it's time I packed it in, which Dick and I found very sad. True.
1: So in terms of the the location of of Porridge, isn't it supposed to be Cumbria? Is that right? Yes.
3: Yes. The original prisoner and escort, they were on a a journey to Cumbria, and we called the prison Slade, and it, it was windswept, bleak Victorian prison Somewhere in, as they called it then, Cumberland.
1: Yes, of course. Now, you mentioned the bleak and Victorian side of things. That, to me, was the other thing I loved about it, was the fact that it felt real. The sets and everything, and it just it just felt like you were actually in a prison, whereas today, a lot of things, again, I think, in terms of comedies, often look very sanitised. And, and, you know, that was another success, I think, of it. The fact that, you, you know, you were talking about the realism of the the parts that they were playing and the the people they were playing, but actually the way they put the the set together, it it looked and felt. It was
3: was a great set. The exterior, the gates of the prison slamming shut, that's uh, a building in Hertfordshire. Is it St Albans? I think so. Court House in St Albans. It's even more realistic in the movie, which Dick directed, which of course is Chelmsford Prison, which was closed for refurbishing or something, and we had the run of the whole prison. So that that was very realistic, and God, it was freezing.
2: Yeah, it was February, and it it, it was bitterly cold, and uh, that certainly felt authentic. You know, you didn't have to act that.
1: No, of course, of course not. Now, the the chemistry is, was definitely there between not just between the the two main characters in this book. You mentioned at the beginning between Fulton Mackay and, and Brian Wilde in terms of their the contrast more than anything, actually, between their their characters and. I mean, they were brilliant, both those actors. Um, I mean, Brian Wilde in particular, uh, you know, I, I particularly like, he'd, he'd done, done loads of things and, and done loads of, very, very versatile actor, which you... Yeah, I've seen him, I saw him in some very weird film, actually, not so long ago, which was on Talking Pictures, where he was playing some somebody with mental health issues when he was quite young. And I, I just think, think they were brilliant. I mean, do you think they were essential to that show's success as much as Godfrey and Fletcher were?
3: Yes. To say anything else would be underestimating their enormous contribution. I mean, you know, there was a wonderful relationship with Fletcher and and Goblet, but there's a wonderful relationship between Fletcher and all three of them. Fletcher and Mackay have some memorable scenes, and it's the way they play it together. And and Brian Wilde too. No, no, it it was a marvellous ensemble. you will rarely get better.
2: And Grouty was an additional character who... Even though he was only in a few of them, actually, he made an enormous impact. Now, I think our favorite scene, maybe, uh, is uh, from the a Fall where God was trying out for the boxing team and Fletcher is told to tell him that it's not going to be his night. And that scene is one of our favorites because it's got such wonderful three dimensional aspects to it. Ronnie being deeply ashamed and then furious when he finds out that God has already promised the other bookmaker that he's going to go down in the first. Uh, so that's a, my favorite scene.
3: Peter Vaughan played Grouty, wonderful actor. I mean, God, I mean, what a career. He was even, in, you know, he went right through the Game of Thrones. He was in a Lovejoy episode for us too. So we worked with him twice. Fantastic man. And I think he probably only did four episodes, but everyone remembers Grouty. They do. Yeah.
1: Now there was only was there only twenty one episodes of
3: Porridge. Is that right? Am I right in saying that? Six, six, two, eight, was it fourteen twenty? Yeah. No, twenty two, I think. Two Christmas specials. Yeah.
1: It was a regret. You
3: know, people often say, like our feed is and two you know, when it had ran its course. Well, that's it. That that's enough. But I think Dick and I both thought that, there was another series of porridge in us. And but there was a, another series of porridge in, in the cast and for the public. But uh, let's, this, let's
2: have a brief mention for Going Straight, because the last episode of Going Straight, where Godber marries Fletcher's daughter, is one of our favourites, actually. It's a, it's a terrific show. And people tend to sort of forget it, although it was very popular and it won an award of its own. But uh, obviously Porridge overwhelms it because Porridge is such a monolithic hit, happily.
1: Yeah. And and the other thing I suppose you also had, I mean, I presume presume this was a consideration. Ronnie Barker was doing so many things at the time, wasn't he? And so was Richard because he was in Rising Damp at the same time as Porridge. And I think Ronnie was in Open All Hours at the same time. So they were both doing that. Plus there was the two Ronnies and all rest of it. It must have been quite a difficult time to get them to actually do things, wasn't it?
2: Well, no, because Ronnie planned his life two years ahead in those days. And so he he would say to us, wait wait a minute, I'm going to Australia for six months. But we could do another series and then he would tell tell you the dates. I mean, basically, he had it planned. I mean, he was was highly professional in that respect. So there was never really a problem. I mean, he always said, I will make time for this. So it was like that.
1: And what about Richard? Because Richard was busy too, obviously. Was he the same? Was he, he... Or was it I never heard of any
2: problems about it. No, no, no.
1: no. Well, two—he was in. Two, he had two big roles, didn't he, at the same time. Yes. Both comedies were were huge at the, roughly around the same time.
2: We we thought that Richard Beckinsale had a huge future ahead of him because he was a wonderful actor and, and very attractive, very appealing, you know. And so when he died, when he did, it was an absolute tragedy. We were all knocked, knocked for six. So Ronnie, particularly, was, was really devastated. Uh, we all were.
1: I remember him uh, at an, an awards ceremony just after that, just after it happening, being very emotional, very upset about it, yeah.
3: Absolutely right, yeah. Yes, Dick was right. I think he could have had a great career. We were in Hollywood, and in 78, and before the Porridge movie, round about the same time, we had written a screenplay and had been pitching it to star Richard Beckinsale. And uh, it was called Sunset Limousine. And of course, the people in the studios didn't know who Richard was. But that's how confident we were that he would become an international uh, actor. What was very nice is years and years later, we worked with Kate Beckinsale. And she was on location. She was telling us Richard died when she was only about two. She said, "I, I know my father through watching Porridge, which was very emotional for both of us.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. I gather he in, in Rising Damp, he had to wear a wig, I think, didn't he? Whereas in, in Porridge, it was just his normal normal hair. Yeah. He hated wearing that wig in Rising Damp, apparently. So I'm told. So Porridge, I mean, obviously a fantastic series, did really well. And then in more recent times, you brought it back or was brought
3: back? I mean... Yes, we did. It started... The BBC were going to do a tribute to 70s comedies, weren't they? They were going to remake. And we said, oh, fine, count us in. So I don't know what the, all the other shows were. I definitely think ours was the best. And that's not just ego. I think the BBC did. And they said, could we do another series? And, and that was something Dick and I said, oh, no, no, no. But the cast was so great. We liked it a lot. The first thing decision we made, we said, we're not doing a remake. We're not going to set it in the 70s. It's got to be now. And it's got to be a new character. So that we made, the connection was it's Fletcher's grandson. But the cast were terrific. And in fact, we enjoyed it enormously, making that porridge and, and setting it in a contemporary prison. So,
1: but, that, but it was just one series, wasn't it? There, there's not been yes. since then. No.
2: We had hoped for more, to be honest. We'd, we'd even written the first one of the new series. And um, We were disappointed that the BBC didn't, didn't stick with it because we think, ine- inevitably, there was, there was bound to be some people who say, oh, why are you tampering with a, with a national treasure? You know you're going to get that. And we tried to meet that head on and say, no, this is this is now, and this is there, there. There are there are echoes of the original, but they are echoes, and 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 that was all. We we very much expected that with our Zen pet when we brought that back too. You know that, that that there was going to be some resistance to people saying, oh, leave it alone, leave it alone. But I think we I think we overcame that as well because we were we were very fond of the uh, of the revival of of our Vizem
1: my only criticism of the, of the of the remake of porridge if i'm being honest is is that what i was saying earlier on about the, the the sets and everything whereas whereas the original porridge felt real in the sense of you were in a prison and it was dark and dingy and i know prisons have changed since then it just felt a little bit too colourful for me that was the only thing that i didn't yeah. like about it. the script i thought was fine and you know all all the actors were brilliant but it was just that element of it and to be honest it's happened the same with they brought back open all hours called it calling it still Open All Hours now. And again, everything's very colourful and bright and it all feels a little bit too, you know, I grew up in Doncaster where Open All Hours was made and it's still not that bright, <laughs> if you know what I mean. So that was my, that's my only sort of criticism, but that's obviously a, the way things are made today.
3: Yeah, we both th- thought Kevin Bishop was great and the whole cast. I think they, they, they wanted to reproduce a classic too much. In my opinion, I would not have done it with a studio audience and those sets. I would have done it as a single camera comedy, which you know, is much more in line with all comedies now. As we'd set it now, why, why reproduce an, an audience that looked like it was from the 70s or 80s? You know, so that studio audience and those sets, you're absolutely right, it should have been a single camera show. I agree, that's good, we're all in agreement. <laughs> we're all in agreement. And
0: Ashley's comedy writing legends conversation with Dick Clement and Ian Lafrenet will continue in a few minutes.
5: If nobody was told what you were meant to do, if there weren't any rules, we would be living in a totally different format. A brand new podcast. Featuring rarely heard voices from across the UK and around the world.
0: Bisexuality is not really understood because people have biphobic tendencies.
5: And the second you mention
2: bisexual, just their ears pick up. Contemporary conversations around bisexuality. Oh, well, you're still confused, right? No, I'm not confused.
5: We are questioned so much more than people when they come out as straight or gay. It's intense pressure of like, am I sure? You're literally like monitoring yourself. Every episode will include a very personal
1: story as we try to paint a real picture of bisexual Britain. This is Bisexual
2: Brunch.
3: Available now wherever you get your podcasts.
0: If you're a Blue Peter fan, you'll enjoy something special we've got coming soon. Tim Vincent is going in search of Valerie Singleton, and he'll be meeting one or two others along the way.
5: Hi, Peter. It's Tim Vincent. How are you? Oh, hi, Tim. How are you? Nice to hear from you. I'm not too bad. i tell you why I'm ringing up. I'm trying to get a hold of Valerie's number, by any chance.
2: What, Singleton? Yes. Hmm. I'm not sure I've got her now. I've got an address somewhere.
5: Well, I'm tempted to ask, why do you want Val's phone number, Tim? I'll only pass it on to you if you divulge why you want it. <laughs> Tim Vincent, as I breathe, what are you calling me for? What do you want? H- Hello, T- Tim. Tim. Tim Vincent. Tim Vincent. Oh, Carl. It's Tim. Just it's about twenty minutes or something. I'm, I'm, no, no, I'm busy. Tim Vincent from Blue Peter.
0: Listen out for *In Search of Valerie Singleton* with Tim Vincent very soon on *Distinct Nostalgia*.
1: Let's focus a little bit on *Weezy's* impact. Um, again, back in the back in the Northeast, iconic characters, very much set in the in the 1980s. Where did the inspiration come from? That, and of course, on this particular moment, you were you were working with the other side weren't you working with uh, was it central television at this point i think I remember right yes
2: well we had a meeting in this town los angeles with frank rodham who and frank rodham came to us with this idea over lunch and he said that he had a, a mate who had been living the, the life he couldn't find any work in britain and he'd gone to germany to, uh, to work as a bricklayer and the moment he said this we thought this was a fantastic idea for a series you know to put a bunch of people it was real and in fact we met the guy he was called mick and he had been living this life and so he was a a built-in technical advisor to tell us you know the way things worked etc etc but we just loved the core idea of a bunch of blokes going to germany to rebuild the towns that they're Dads and brothers and uncles had bombed in the first place. And that that seemed to be a wonderful irony with a with a built-in fish out of water, people love that phrase, uh situation. And, th- and then we had to create the characters. And so we built from three Geordies and then we added Barry and, and Wayne
3: and Bomber and all the others. And it was it just worked, to our great surprise. Well, yeah, I love Dumfeas and Bed. I think it was great writing a drama. It became my favorite length. Suddenly, writing drama length instead of comedy. And uh, it was commissioned by Margaret Matheson, a woman head of drama, uh, in a a series that virtually had no women in it at all. It went out, and we were here. We didn't expect it to be a big success. And I think if it had been today, uh, after the audience, after the first six, seven episodes, they might have cancelled it, canned it, but they stuck with it and the audience grew and grew and it became a very popular show.
1: And there was a lot of comedy in it though, wasn't there? Oh, there's
3: a lot of comedy in it. The first series was the best because it was the most authentic. The second series, it was a bit more contrived, trying, finding a way to get them all together. We resisted bringing it back in 2002, 2001 because... We thought we'll get the same. Oh, why well, can't they leave alone? Have they got nothing else to do? Uh, but then we went to London, we had lunch with the original cast and realized how much they loved working with each other, how much mutual respect and affection there was. And uh, by the end of lunch, which obviously included Frank and Martin McKean, who would produced, by the end of lunch, we said, Oh, yeah, we've got to do this. We've got to do this. Frank and Jimmy Nail had had this outrageous idea of the transporter bridge going to America. That appealed. So, in fact, we think that series and the next series in Cuba are excellent and uh, we're very proud of them.
1: And it launched the careers of quite a few actors, didn't it? Let's face it. I mean, quite oh, a few. Oh, the people. original, yes. They all went on to great things. I worked with um, Tim Healy not so long ago in a, in, a, in a short little comedy drama that I actually. Came up with the idea for, and I got somebody to write for, for five, Radio Five Live, which was a it was called "Don't Cry for Me, Maradona," <laughs> and it was all about the the moment in 1986 when Bobby Robson obviously it, it almost got to the final and they were kicked out by um by Argentina and whatever. And and uh, it's a it's a little scenario where um Bobby and his wife, Bobby Robson and his wife, uh, sat on a just having a basically a um, a picnic in the aftermath and talking about what went wrong and, you know, what happened and all the rest of it. And um, I got Tim Healy to play Bobby Robson and Denise Welsh, who was at the time his, his wife, to play his wife. So they'd got the husband-wife chemistry anyway and they knew Bobby and Elsie very well. So it worked It worked really well. It was lovely to work with Tim. He's a really lovely guy. And, and it was um, it was a very quick turnaround thing and he was, he was brilliant at just turning it around really quickly. So I was really, really pleased with that. So yeah, he launched some fantastic careers and um, They've gone on some some uh, some brilliant things. Now, looking back at all those things, the we Design Pet Porridge, Likely Lads. I'm sure it's the same in America as it is over here at the moment, where there's all this talk constantly now about what you can say, what you can't say, how you say it, who you represent, who you don't represent, etc. It feels to me, to an extent, that you know anybody writing comedy now is treading on hey eggshells constantly. I mean. Do you think, obviously you have done Porridge, a new version of Porridge recently, but how has all that sort of climate changed comedy? And, and you know, do you think some of those things that you did way, way back in the past would work today? I mean, what, what's your feeling about that and how comedy's sort of changed and, and developed over the
3: years? It might have been slowly building, but it's accelerated enormously in the last two years. And, and of course, there's many good reasons that things have changed. And one is diversity and, and casting, and which affects everything we write now. Everything we write. It has to be a diverse ensemble. We haven't ourselves been affected by it because we haven't been in production with anything in the U.K., which would have, where, where we'd feel, you know, the impact of it or senses. What we're writing at the moment is contemporary, and that might, we might be affected by it. Uh, but uh, we, we haven't in the last two or three years because we've been involved in drama or other things. But it's, it's ma- it is it's making a massive impact now. And, I mean, I we're all appalled by what happened to it. Forty Towers, when I saw that Cleese had spoken out, given an interview expressing his outrage about the Germans being cut, are, are, are they are they cutting that scene from like all reissues of DVD? No, I think they've
2: I think they've, they've gone back on that, haven't they? I think there was such a clamour that they reversed their original decision. It was it was daft.
1: Yeah, you know? I mean, I think that I'm from an LGBT background, as it were, kind of thing, and I watch things like Porridge, where there's obviously occasionally somebody might say something about somebody being, we well not say it, but allude to somebody being gay or camp. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. and Or I'd watch uh, Are You Being Served? And obviously John Inman or Larry Grayson or whatever. And none of it offends me in any way, shape or form. I love it. I think it's great. But then again, I grew up in an era when that was on TV all the time. And actually those people were in many ways are my heroes in a way, you know what I mean? So I do feel as though so much comedy now, certainly over here, the comedy that we're getting, apart from one or two gems, there's one called Two Doors Down, which is which is a Scottish comedy, fantastic, really good. Uh, Elaine C. Smith's in it, and various other people. And it's very good observational. But I feel as though that observational side has disappeared, and everything now has become very surreal, or very sort of very niche. Everything's very niche. There's very little for a mainstream, wider audience for granny and grandkid to be able to enjoy at the same time. Do you know what I mean? It's,
3: yeah.
1: It worries me because it, it's sort of Wendy Wendy Craig. I interviewed. He said. She thought that comedy had gone out of fashion. Do think it's a really sad thing to think, really?
3: Oh, that's well, a good. That's a good note to end this on. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, thanks for that, Ashley. Not, not your comedy, of course. <laughs> <laughs> that's it, it is a big lift. as we go back. On. <laughs> no, but what do you? I mean, what what do you make of? I mean, that, Wendy Craig. You know, she's obviously done loads of comedy. What do you think? Make of somebody actually? Sa- having, saying that, and feeling that, I, mean, I think that's quite sad, isn't it, really?
3: Well, maybe I think she means the comedy of her generation has gone out of fashion. The oh. comedy hasn't. I mean, look at the shows I'm, I'm watch, you know, watching on American comedies on television. are very funny, but everything is affected by... I mean, Oz would lose half his lines if we were doing it now.
1: Yeah, yeah.
3: You know, all, all his remarks about nationalities and, and genders and women and everything. You, you, uh, yes. Oz would, I,
2: I, I, I take heart from the fact that there's still curve Your Enthusiasm and, and Veep. And I was very fond of Silicon Valley, actually. I mean, I'm talking about American shows, but we live here, so inevitably I see those more. But there is still good comedy to be made. And, you know, if there always will be. I think it'll be, maybe there have always been different minefields that you have to tiptoe around.
1: I, um, I didn't like Kirby and my, my partner introduced me to it right at the very beginning when we, when we first met. Um, but over the years, I've, I've, I've grown. To, I really love it now. It's weird. It's one of those things that's really grown on me, you know, Kermit enthusiasm. And you're right. I mean, that pushes loads of boundaries, doesn't it? All the time, you know. He's,
2: well, yes, and he's an awful person. I mean, but that's okay. You know,
3: you can be an awful person and still be funny. The Office was was wonderful, but the American version of The Office is quite brilliant. Well,
1: we're Amazing. doing a, we're doing a little celebra- we're doing a little celebration of East Is East, the film, which of course had undertone. A lot of it was about racism and domestic abuse and all the rest of it. And, uh, but it was, obviously it was a very great comedy film from you know, 1999. But you know, that tackled so many issues, and I was talking to three of the actors, and they even think that that now, you know, even though it was, it was raw, it was honest, it was people from those communities, and it was a writer from that, from that community writing it, they even think that it would, it would be difficult now to get off the ground in the current climate. You know.
3: Yeah, I never saw is East.
1: Yeah, it's based in Salford and it's a, it's a relationship between a, a white woman and her Pakistani husband and they've got a mixed-race family. So it's all the contrast between the different cultures in Salford in the very early 1970s. And so you can imagine there's so many different possibilities there, uh, including the kids who are just growing up in, in a sort of liberated 1970s and mum and dad aren't quite keen on that and... There's all sorts of elements that, um, that you know, play out. It's, it's really very well done. But the, the main core of it, the serious side, is that the husband is, is basically uh, hitting the, the wife kind of thing. So there's a serious undertone in it. But, but yeah, it's, it's all very interesting. Anyway, um, we, we let, let's not go too deep. <laughs> um, and remember, there is some comedy out there, some great comedy, as you say. Um, looking back then at your careers, and it's great that you're still, you're still working, still doing stuff. You know, as I said at the very beginning, it feels like you've been around forever. When you look back, both of you, and you've been working together for such a long time, and that's brilliant to keep up that and kept up that partnership, what would you say was your proudest moment, would you say?
2: Oh, gosh. The the funny thing is completely off the wall. I think the most fun we had was when we were doing Billy, the musical, with Michael Crawford, and, and other things were going on at the time. Porridge was happening at the time, and... You, you know, th- that was a fantastic time for us, you know, where everything went right. And the fact that we had a musical on Drury Lane, no less, you know, was. Uh, we've been trying to revive it ever since, by the way, and we've never been able to do it. We had a couple of plays, you know, that we had one on not long ago uh, called Chasing Bono, which we were about to do again and still want to.
3: So, Ian, what about you? Is that. You know, I, mean, I, I look on whatever the like, Lads, is probably the most important thing we did because i think it, it 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 really validated us as a series writers because after like lads we were so young we thought what the f did, you know do we know what we're doing and then we did it uh, we got another series which was a disaster and then we then we went away from television and gotten movies but then we, so when we came back that was a relaunch of us and that was really can we really sit down and write a major television series and we did and uh to me, that validated the future. But uh, uh, highlights, obviously, Porridge speaks for itself. And I think The Commitments was a big highlight for us. That, yes. that breakthrough film for us, it got us an enormous amount of attention and awards. It was enormous fun to be involved with. And just a few years ago, we, we did a film called Across the Universe, which we're extremely proud of. And so, that you know, they're spotted around over the decades, but they're all good. Yeah, I mean, it's it, disappointing, but the experience of everything was so was so worthwhile. We've been so blessed.
1: It would and be I wonderful. suppose
3: the most important is the next one. We'll keep you informed about that a year from now.
1: Okay. okay. Well, <laughs> another film or a comedy? Or a TV uh,
3: film? Well, there's two films were cancelled because of COVID, both set in London uh, and a play opening. But uh, th- this, at the moment... We're writing a half-hour comedy and a long, big drama series. We're waiting, and uh, the comedy has a very well-known English actor, but we'll hold that news back for you.
1: (laughs) And 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 this is something we'll be able to see in the UK, is
3: it? Yeah, 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 absolutely. Well, I'll I'll tell you, the title is not "Fade Away," which is enough. Seems to be an appropriate (laughs) song for Dick and I. We can sing it for you if you like, as we. As we roll credits, <laughs> now you, just the final question: You're obviously you're both there
1: in America, and were you writing stuff often about the UK and what you know about the UK? Do you
3: get back to the UK quite a bit, or? Oh yes, yes. We would have been in the UK doing a book tour. Uh, we we we're in the UK a lot, and and one of the the worst things for me about COVID is just not going there. And you've been you've been
1: you've been over there though living over there for a long time, you've both been there oh yes, but
3: you know the uk is so important to us um yeah. and uh and 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 seeing you know all the friends and all the connections of course so.
1: yeah, fantastic lovely to talk to you both and and we're going to have to draw this to an end because I can see that dick is uh is, is ready to rush out the door
3: <laughs> well no, so if we're ever if we're ever in Doncaster
1: yeah. Yeah, well, I'm in Manchester I now, actually. I'm in Manchester. But I remember
3: when I was a kid, when we used to drive to the northeast or, or the other way around, you had to go right through Doncaster. And then there was the Doncaster bar. But Dick and I, when we were talking once in a lecture about all the places we've written, do you know what I mean? Air, airport lounges, ocean liners, hotels, motels, restaurants. And once we pulled up in a lay-by and wrote something on the Doncaster Bypass. <laughs> but I can't remember what it was. Can you, Dick?
1: No, what I can't. I
3: can't.
1: Um, listen, guys, it's been lovely to talk to you. I've really enjoyed it. Well, Thank you me. too, Ashley. Take care. Thank Bye. you very much indeed. Have a good day. Take care. How and that interview with uh, Dick Clement and Ian Lefrenet, of course, it was recorded um, last year. And uh, we need to catch up and find out what happened there new projects. Uh, Hopefully we'll find out in the new year. Bye. Dick
0: Clement and Ian Lafrenet in our latest Comedy Writing Legends episode, and we've much more to come in the new year, including a chat with Brian Cook, who created shows like Georgia Mildred, Robins Nest and Man About the House. And don't forget you can hear more comedy writing legend interviews, plus dozens of conversations with some of our favourite comedy actors on Distinct Nostalgia. There's 200 hours of entertainment. Find a story to suit you by trawling through our feed wherever you get your podcasts. Distinct Nostalgia is produced by MIM, and if you like what we do then please consider supporting us on Patreon. Every penny helps us to make even more amazing content just for you. Go to distinctnostalgia.com and click on the donate button. Thank you.
5: Distinct Nostalgia. More than a podcast.